what I want to do today is I want to free you of any tension you have with this idea of work and ministry. That is a big goal that I have. Now, I'm an entrepreneur, but I've also been a Fortune 500 employee, so I know what it's like to be in both. I'll probably resonate even better with the entrepreneurs in the crowd just because of my journey. So what I hope, though, is that um, as we come to the end of this, either through my own story uh, of an entrepreneur or as a ministry leader in an international businesses missions organization, that somehow, some way, I can give you ideas on how to proceed next as a marketplace professional. Okay, that's what I'm hoping I can deliver on. Uh, let's see if we can uh, keep going here. So the title today of what I'm talking about is Entrepreneurship as a Mission Strategy. How, how Christians in the marketplace can live out the Great Commission. Now, this title is somewhat grandiose and all-encompassing, okay, um, about how people can be uh, workplace ministers I probably won't deliver on that kind of an answer, okay? I'm just telling you that up front. But what I do want to do is just share the experiences that I've had as a believer. And my hope is that I'm going to catalyze some new thinking in you today, okay? So uh, the next slide, just to kind of introduce you to me, some people that are important to me. Uh, my son, Colin, is there next to me. He's in college. Uh, and my daughter, Lindsay, just graduated from Baylor, is going to William & Mary next year. Um, son is a baseball player looking to see where he's going to land next after his sophomore year in junior college. Um, and then, of course, being in the pet business, I got to have a dog in the picture. Um, I got outvoted three to one on that. I didn't want her in the picture. And uh, she is a cute Labradoodle. She's four. And then my wife, Heidi, who is an amazing woman who has tolerated with my crazy journey for 29 years. So we're going to celebrate 30 in Australia next, next winter. So... Um, Thought I'd share a little bit of that with you. Um, so this may look familiar to you, Dr. Tatlock. Um, he shared some information with me as I prepared for this um, talk. And one slide that really resonated with me that I thought that you would enjoy because I think maybe some of you may be there today. And it's by John Piper. And let's read that together here. It's, or I'll read it. Um, God is calling many of you to rethink your life goals and your life work. These are exciting days, unsettling days, but you are yearning to live and work closer to the brink of eternity. You are dissatisfied with working just to make money. You are questioning the point of a job that has little significance for eternity. The thought of doing something risky and radical and out of step with the American dream keeps coming back to you. Okay, now some of you are here today by divine appointment, and I believe that this quote may capture the essence of maybe where some of you are today. And my desire this afternoon is to challenge your thinking and exhort you to pray on how God could use your gifts and experiences to engage in missions right here where you are, whether you're in Southern California or wherever you've come from in your work, or perhaps through the vehicle of missions using your business skills. So let's talk about a roadmap where we're going to go. I'm going to share my story. I want to develop a working definition of business's mission. I'd love to help you discover how IBAM has become an effective platform for business's mission. I am not here selling IBAM, okay? I'm just sharing an idea with you. And lastly, I hope you can learn how you can begin your journey to engaging in missions as a marketplace believer. And you've already gotten started in that from the great speakers that we've had so far today. 
Okay, so that's the roadmap. So I am the son of a GM factory worker in Lansing, Michigan. And uh, I got to see a guy play basketball in 1977 at my high school that you guys all know here in L.A. pretty well, uh, Magic Johnson. Um, I was in eighth grade. I didn't get to play against him. I would have got killed. So, But uh, special, special um, situation. So it was pretty cool. Um, but I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I was the first Christian in my family. My parents were not believers. Um, we had grown up in one school from kindergarten to eighth grade. And in eighth grade, my dad moved us out into the country, and I thought it was the worst moment of my life. I was in a big school with a competitive sports program. I wanted to be a pro football player. I ended up playing in college, but didn't make the pros. And here we are moving to this little farm town. And it was pretty, I was pretty disgusted by it all. But anyway, I met a really cool family next door, uh, the Quarters. And Dad was a bivocational pastor. He's a plumber, master plumber and a pastor. And we got there at the end of May, and they went to work on me right away. And um, so in August... Uh, they invited me to something called Vacation Bible School. I'd never heard of this thing. Um, and I went, and myself and two of my buddies, at the end of the week, we accepted Christ as our Savior. And, it was, it was, and then we got baptized on Sunday, so it was Friday, Sunday. It was kind of cool. Um, so fast forward, uh, after graduating from college, I met my wife in college. Um, I began my adult life in corporate banking. And I married my college sweetheart, who you saw up there. Well, for the next seven years, I sat under a solid Bible teacher. Um, I established my new career, and then I finished my MBA. Those are the things that I thought I needed to do. But in retrospect, I had a really big problem. Um, I was So this would be like 29 years old, 28. All I could think about was my success. I was really full of myself. All I could think about was being the head of the bank. And getting ahead. And, you know, I was going to church. I was in the Word. But somehow that didn't, I I missed that part. And it took God getting me really sick to break through in my life. And what happened was we were on a vacation in um, Hawaii on a cruise. And when we got there, the the first night I told my wife, I said, I'm not feeling good. I woke up the next morning and I was numb up to here. And I could walk maybe 10, 12 feet and I have to sit down. And I had a ton of stress. I'd just gotten done with grad school a few years earlier. I was in a new lending assignment where I had about half a dozen companies in bankruptcy. I'd inherited a real nice portfolio. And, uh, you know, it was just a cocktail of stress. And ultimately, it took me down in some ways. And the thing is, it was 18 months of this. They, they did testing for 13 months. A lot of bad words were used, like ALS and... MS and cancer and things like that, trying to look for. And I remember God broke me in this. And I remembered um, I was downstairs laundry, doing laundry. I tried to do something productive. I didn't miss any work. I just had a chair in the fax room for me so I could sit down. And I remember asking God, you know, God, I just pray I got cancer so that at least I know I can get better. And then, then the other thing I prayed was, Lord, I, you got my attention and I'm surrendering to you right now the best I know how. That's all I could say in that prayer. It was the best I knew how. I'm surrendering to you now. And then I asked him simply to use me and to challenge me to the fullest of my abilities if in his grace he chose to heal me. And God graciously healed me. And I was his. And 
I, if you want to come up to me afterwards, I can tell you what it was. It was they tried. They called it chronic fatigue syndrome, but I, it, I don't know what it was. And I think God miraculously healed me because I went and saw an internist. He told me, "You're fine. You're not going to. You're not going to die." He says, "I want you to have no sugar, eat awful yogurt for a year, and I want you to walk every day. And in five months, you'll be playing basketball." And you have to understand, when I went and saw him, I couldn't walk 20 feet in a mall. And you know what? Five months later, I was playing basketball again. And it was a miraculous thing, and God had gotten my attention. And so for the next couple of years, I kept asking God, what is it? how are you going to challenge me, Lord? What is it you want me to do? And, and after seeking this for a couple of years, i never forget, I was driving home after a mountaintop experience as a banker. I just booked the largest deal I'd ever done. It was like a $36 million transaction. Um, feeling pretty good. And God broke through. And I sensed a clear calling from him in the car, something I was not expecting, and that was, I want you to quit your job. Now, you have to understand something. My wife was in her hometown. Uh, I had built her her dream home literally like four months earlier. We just moved into it, and God was saying, quit. He was saying, I want you to be an entrepreneur. I have a ministry to entrepreneurs to you. Okay, And it wasn't said exactly like that. But that was the impression I got. And so for the next year, I spent an incredible amount of time in prayer and in the Word, looking at entrepreneurial opportunities, talking to godly counselors, making sure I just didn't have like indigestion or something, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm making this up. Was there selfish ambition? Did I all of a sudden suddenly want to just get rich being a business guy? And you have to understand something. At the moment, I was on a fast track at the bank. They had offered me a job in Sydney, Australia. And that was always the key. That's when you're on the C-suite path because we had 11 foreign offices. And so, um, by the little side story, I want to make sure I told this one. My wife always likes this. So can you imagine going to guys, going to your wife in my position now and going, honey, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, "Um, I need you. I said, he told me I got to quit my job. And we got to move and we got to start a business. And guess what? I believe it's a pet store. She's like, you want to do what? You want to, do, you want to own a pet store? And, you know, I had shared some of this with her, but I had finally gotten to the moment. And a little bit of my immaturity, I didn't share the whole story with her. And that was really dumb because when I did, my wife immediately supported everything I wanted to do. She said, if the Lord's telling you this, I'm in. That's the kind of woman she is. So we sold our house. We packed up. Um, we moved our young family. Colin was six months old. Lindsay was two and a half when we arrived in Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, my daughter caught, cut her first tele- radio commercial as a two and a half year old. So her, yeah, her one line was, that's right, mommy, Pet Supplies Plus. That was her line for the, for the ad. And I was excited, man. Here we are. We followed the Lord's will. Um, and all this stuff, by the way, in the book that I gave you, this is all in there with more detail. So you can read that later. But uh, I was excited. I wanted to create a great organization for the glory of God. That was my goal. And I hoped my family would really grow and stretch in their faith as we went on this journey together. Okay? This was, I came from a blue-collar family. I was the first business owner that anybody in our family had ever known. And so um, this was a big step. And I also hoped that God, through this, would immediately show me what this ministry was to entrepreneurs in my immaturity. Okay? Well, how many of you have ever started a business? Well, how did it go the first week or month? Not good, right. So that, the dream 
was there, but then reality set in right away. And the stark realities of launching a business set in, and they hit home, and they hit home hard, and they, tr- they tested my faith to the core. And let me just tell you, the first eight years I was in business, we didn't make a profit. I remember having lots of conversations with the Lord. Lord, I know you called me to this, but what's going on? And what it was was, first of all, the normal process of developing a business that we all know about takes time. Number two, my own stupid mistakes. Okay, all the advice I gave as a banker, I broke all of it. I didn't even listen to myself. I won't go into all that. It's in the book. But I also had, more importantly, aspects of my character that just were not ready for a vision of the size God wanted to give me. And I needed to be refined. And so the trials of business have refined why I'm in business, and they've, they've strengthened my commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. And I needed that. I was not there yet at that age. And so God couldn't trust me with the kind of vision that he's subsequently given me. So what I also want to do now is I want to share a story. I want to be very transparent with you. I'm going to share a story now that I believe was a real turning point for me in this idea of the workplace and ministry and how they're, they're interrelated, okay? It was about 10 years ago. Um, I had a defining moment that changed the trajectory of my life, my business, and ministry. And you have to understand something. At this point, up to this point, uh, my entire adult life, I had operated with this idea that ministry was vocational and that my work was separate. Okay? I'm, that, just the sub, the, that, that's how I had arrived at this point in my life. And, you know, I knew that I had to be a positive influence and testimony at work and that my walk with Christ extended beyond Sunday, but I had this false dichotomy of work and ministry. And it was also at this time that I was struggling perhaps with the idea of selling my business. Like maybe I'd gotten it wrong. I love ministry. At, at this point in time, I, we were just starting a new church plant and maybe I should go to seminary. Maybe I should be a vocational minister. And so, okay, so all that's going on. And then another bigger, big trial hits. Um, back, reel it backwards just a little bit. I don't want to get too complicated here, but I brought in two Christian partners who were real estate guys. Okay, I was really good at everything in retail, but I could not pick a site to save my neck. I had to close a couple stores, and I got tired of spending the money to get out of that problem, okay? So I brought in Chad and Aaron, and we started developing retail shopping centers with the idea we would do that in the stores, and they would synergistically work. The problem was that started in 03, and then what happened in 07 and 08? You see where this train's going? So we, we had invested in a big project down in Indianapolis. Uh, it was a $40 million deal. We should not have been doing it. Um, we had an institutional partner who sold and gave up on us. And so we carried the project further to finish it. We had a partner. And then the night before uh, we were to close, I got a phone call from my partner. I was in Mobile, Alabama on a little mini vacation with my wife on the beach in Gulf Shores. And Aaron said, Steve, I'm sorry to tell you, but they walked. And I said, who walked? He said, our anchor. I'm not going to mention names. And I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no, the project's done. So all of the other deals we had done, the whole deal was done. If they close, we build it out and we sell it. That didn't happen. And so now instead of having a big payday, 
um, we had $3 million worth of debt that we, there was no visible way to pay it. Okay? So what kind of presumptuous behavior had we exhibited to get to that point? Okay? Big lesson. All right, so here we are. And I remember uh, uh, being on the beach the next day, and my wife and I were there, and I couldn't even talk. I couldn't breathe hardly. And I don't know if any of you have been there, but um, um, here I was, 43 years old. At 33, I was on the fast track, and at 43, I'm bankrupt. And I got two preteen kids, college looming, and I have no idea how we're going to get through this. And I said, honey, I just got to go for a walk. So I went for a walk on the beach. I think I walked like three miles before I figured out what, what I was even doing, praying the whole way. And I remember all of a sudden I just got a sense of peace and the Lord just spoke to me and I went, you know what? I have two things I got to do here. The only option is to do the right thing. Number one, we're going to develop a plan to pay every penny of this debt. We would not and we could not dishonor the name of the Lord voluntarily. Now, if some bank didn't want to play ball and shoved us into bankruptcy, I don't, you know, we can't do anything, but we're not going to do that. And number two, any thought I had at this point of leaving business to go into full-time ministry was going to have to be deferred because I was looking at a decade of work. Okay? So, and my kids are sitting there watching, Dad, what are you going to do? We were very transparent. We told them what happened. And I needed to show them that the faith that I had was real and that it was genuine. Well, that part still gets me. Eight, ten years later, it still gets me. I'm surprised. So anyway, would I fold up and would I quit and be a bitter old man or would I live out the faith that I was teaching my kids and lead myself and work myself out of this mess with the Lord, obviously? You know, we behaved our way into it. We had to behave our way out of it. And it was going to take time. And you know what? A lot of character building happened over those next ten years. Well, in that Critical time, some great people came into my life, people that I'd already had in my life, and they really started to go to work on this. Why do you think you have to be in one or the other? And they helped me sort through this idea that there's, this is a false dichotomy that you have, that I didn't have to pursue vocational ministry to be in ministry, that I could be in ministry by doing what I'm doing now. You know, God had called me to be an entrepreneur, and you know, I learned about the biblical doctrine of work in Genesis 1. You've seen it up here already. Um, you know, Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 7. You know, God had me in a place, and that's where I needed to stay. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is also an area of uh, uh, God's word on work. And the verse, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, verse 13, that was monumental to me at that point because I'm telling you, I was weary from the trials. You have to understand, I'd left... In 96, and here it was in 2007, it had been nothing but trials. Nothing but trials. But in the midst of this, this is when I got very clear. I realized this is what God had called me to do, and this is what I was supposed to do. And now I was freed of that internal tension, um, this internal dissonance of work and ministry. And I knew right where I was supposed to be. And so now I was free to pursue entrepreneurship with a passion and not be held back, having feelings of guilt like I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. And so with this new vision restored, God enabled me to reimagine how I might go forward as an entrepreneur. And so we dealt with the debt, all of that, set up a plan. But the next thing I did as CEO of our company was 
I needed to come back and have a biblical philosophy of leadership. And it centered on this idea that our employees are image bearers of God. And that because people are so inherently valuable to him, they needed to be just as important to me in our leadership of our company. So we would build our brand and we would build our company out in the marketplace by differentiating on the basis of the quality of our people, on the investment we would make in them. And so today, each one of our employees are hired on the basis of cultural fit and the assessment results. Um, We place each person now in a scripted multi-year development process. All 700 employees that we have today get an interview every single month. We document the development process. Um, Our goal is to holistically care for the employee, not just their work, but their entire life. We want to be so different as an employer that they ask us, why do you do this? And we get that question every week, and it's so exciting because guess what? In retail, we have some turnover. But our turnover is like a third to a little bit more less than the average. Um, Some of it's just structural because kids go on and go to college and things. So the other thing is we're okay if we develop you and you leave. We actually celebrate it. And I had a girl come up to me in Ashburn, Virginia just recently, sheepish that she was going to leave us and go to Old Dominion University. And I'm like, I love it. This is great. And she goes, really? I'm like, yes, this is, this is great. We want you to do and become all that you can be. And you know what? While they're with us, they give us the discretionary part of their heart. They give us everything they got. And then sooner or later, we have the spiritual conversation because they want to know why do we care about them and why do we invest in them the way that we do. Now, the other thing that we've done with our culture is we've created um, a process. To, see, I believe that people have to be intrinsically motivated, that I can't motivate 700 people two-thirds of which are like a big youth group, right, from the outside in. And you guys know, you go into retail stores and they're like this, right? Our stores aren't like that. They got big, bright faces and they're excited. And, it's, and the reason is, is that we've taken the concept of, of biblical discipleship and we've taken a secular twist and applied that and it motivates the heck out of our people. And that is, number one, we communicate a clear purpose to them and their job. Number two, we have a documented path to mastery for them that we put them through every month. And then we empower them as either hourly employees or trained leaders to develop other leaders. And the number one job of our store managers is not to operate the store, it's to be a coach and develop people. It is not to run the store. So when you examine those, they parallel the, the, um, the biblical principles of discipleship. Okay. We as Christians have the greatest purpose in the world. We go through training constantly as we read the Word of God and other materials. And then as we do that, we're empowered and we're sent. And so we're just taking that kind of a concept and applying it in our business. And the cool thing is, is now 10 years later, we used to have two stores. Since you got that bio, we did a couple of things, Mark. Now we have 39 stores. And, uh, and we have about four or five in planning right now. And honestly, it's not about that. Every time we open a store, it's an opportunity to influence more people. That's how I look at it. Okay? So, in our, in, so the, the success is there in the terms of our growth. Um, our franchise group that we have today is, at, is growing three times the national average of an average pet retailer in terms of growth. No, no surprise, right? 
Treat people the way God wants them to be treated, and it'll happen. And by God's provision and grace, this is really exciting for me. We just had a partner meeting last week, and in March of next year, we'll pay the last dime of that debt from the beach. And uh, praise God. Oh, <laughs> praise Him. Yeah. Praise Him. And you know, it's been great because we have a relationship with the banking community now that is sterling, and we've had spiritual conversations because of it, because so many people quit and gave up. And you know, it isn't me, it's the strength of the Lord that got us through that. So what have I learned from all this? Um, there's eight principles. I'm going to read through them quick because I've got to stay on schedule. Um, number one, God owns my business and he owns everything else and all of the resources that are in that business. Okay, whether I think we'll break $100 million in sales next year. The first year we did 900000 God owns all of it. It's not mine. Number two, people are image bearers of God, and they matter deeply to him, so they matter deeply to me. They are not objects to manage or to utilize or to manipulate. They are a sacred stewardship. Number three, pay people well, provide benefits, invest heavily in their development of the whole person. We believe people are our most appreciable asset, not inventory, not retail leases, not customers. In fact, customers are number two in our company. Employees are number one. Because if our employees are number one, they'll take care of the customers. Because I'm here with you talking. 39 stores, cash registers are running right now. I can't, I can't modify their behavior from here. Number four, there is no Christian test for employment, but all employees must abide by biblical values while they work in our stores. Okay, so they know that the company is run through the lens of a Christian worldview. So when that supplier sends $1 more than our invoice, we call the supplier and we pay for it. We don't keep it. We don't take coupons from Science Diet that they give us and put them in the deposit bag and not give them to clients. That's what, that's what those were to be used for. In our business, there are 100 little ethical dilemmas every day. And we have to teach them that there's only one answer, and that is straight honesty. We're going to do things the right way with our suppliers and with our clients and with everybody else that's around us. Number five, I believe that being a believer in the marketplace is a calling. It is a calling. And, I'm, and one that I'm to pursue with excellence and with eternal purpose to the glory of God. Amen? Number six, I believe growing and developing our business is a divine activity. Each new store brings opportunities for impact. As my friend Don Trott says, uh, formerly of ABWE, and now he's the president of IBAM, he says, we, Steve, we're in a divine partnership with God. And I'll tell you, when I wake up on a Monday and I have a bad feeling about maybe we had a crappy week in sales last week, I remember I'm in a divine partnership with God, and that will not be broken. Number seven, I believe highly... I believe being highly profitable is a good thing, okay? It's not a bad thing, provided your attitude toward that profit is that it's a tool. It's a tool, and God gave me the stewardship of that tool, like the parable of the talents. And I see no divide in my week between secular and sacred. My ministry is my business. I worship God each day as I go to work, and as I work, and my work is a good thing from him, even if it's selling dog food. Okay? It's not real sexy. It's not like making a $100 million loan. I sell dog food. That's what I am. I'm a purveyor of dog chow. That's it. But, to the glory of God, yep. Now, here's the cool thing, though. 
So because I'm a dog child purveyor, my business gave me the resources and the time and the experiences to invest now in businesses' missions work all over the world. I don't have time to tell you the stories. Well over, well over 30 people I've had an intimate relationship with over the last five years, Muslim background believers, Muslims who have come to faith in Christ. It's an incredible experience. These experiences have also led me to partner with uh, one gentleman that's on our board to invest in a new organization in Kosovo. Bobby, you about messed my speech up because I was crying all the time listening to you because I know some of the people he knows. And we're launching a business to do what Rob Provost talked about last night with the Great Commission, to advance the gospel, the church, the truth, and biblical shalom. And that's what we're doing through iBlueSky LLC, which is our company in Kosovo. Well, we, have, we don't know what the name in Kosovo is. Bobby's working on that. So, um, so that's enough about my business. What I want to transition to now and quickly go through is, as a result of all these things I've shared with you, God revealed about eight years ago, finally, what he wanted me to do. And it makes sense now because it's banking and it's entrepreneurship. And guess what? That's what he did in my life. And that is this organization called International Businesses Mission, or IBAM for short. And so let's start with a working definition of businesses mission. Now, this, doesn't, this includes here, too. This isn't just in Kazakhstan. Business as a vehicle of the mission of God in the world. Um, that was author Mark Russell. I like the definition. Business is simply a tool, and it's a vehicle for us to pursue the Great Commission. Everybody in this room can do this because we're all business people. Okay, let's talk about four methods, primary methods of BAM. First one is platform business. This is the one I'm not as excited about, where missionaries will set up kind of a sham business. Uh, Somebody said last night, sell one bubblegum machine a year and then pursue ministry because business is separate. But it gets done. Another one is tent maker, and Rob Provost is really doing a great job with this, where skilled trade or professionals go to a country, get a job, exercise their skills, and they build relationships leading to their, their working out of the Great Commission in their lives. And it's a great model, and it works. Another one is foreign-owned. That's what we're doing. We're outsiders, invest and own in a local business for the purpose of profit, employment, economic development, and the Great Commission, and evangelism. And there's many examples. Many great people are doing cool things with this. IBAM's model is the locally owned version where you provide venture capital for an in-country entrepreneur to start or grow a locally owned business using their business idea to grow God's kingdom, to grow the church. So BAM is not new. It's kind of a cool thing in missions conferences right now. But it's not new. It's been around forever. Well, for last, in the church age, in 2,000 years, you got the Nestorians. They were Eastern Christians who used trade routes from the Middle East to China. Uh, William Carey engaged in many business activities, and the Basel Mission Tra- uh, Trading Company sent bivocational missionaries into the field with a skilled trade. There's many more. I'm just giving you a sampling. Biblical examples. Barnabas sold a field and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Lydia you know, a seller of purple, that was a very valuable commodity. And she, she was used in the process of the early church. And then because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked 
for they were tent makers by trade. And this is the example of Paul. And I want to center in on him a little bit. Let's talk about Paul's world. And uh, um, uh, Wayne, you talked about Pax Romana. Think about Paul's world. He lived in the time of the Roman Empire. There was ease of travel, expanding public services. Koine Greek was ubiquitous, which all aided him in the expansion of Christianity. And by the way, I'll make this all available to you at the end too. Um, Paul had many outward limitations which worked against him being granted automatic credibility. You know, he wasn't eloquent in speech, right? Some of the things he said, maybe some physical appearance issues. So the credibility that he was going to gain was going to be from his character. And the question I have is what better way to demonstrate character than through the everyday grind of business and working alongside others daily? Um, it's a great way. It shows where you, what your character is. So Paul's strategy was to remain in cities for extended periods of time, to set up his tent business, to enter into local social networks and trade associations, to be known. And then he, went, he shared the gospel, he planted a church, and he mentored spiritual leaders. That was his plan. That was his strategy. So IBAM, designed to thrive, what is IBAM, International Business's Missions? It's a platform for marketplace believers to engage in BAM opportunities worldwide. Again, I'm not here raising money for BAM. I'm not trying to convince you you should be involved with it. But if you think that you would like to engage in missions using your business background, we have, I think, a really cool platform for you. IBAM's mission is to facilitate the growth of the local church using the tool of entrepreneurship in economically challenged environments. We are not about community development in, in a general sense. We are about the church and uplifting the church and coming under the church. Our vision, and this is our long-term vision, is we want it to produce thriving believers in thriving local churches with thriving gospel ministries in developing areas. Our focus right now is in the Muslim world, but long-term, we want to franchise the concept of IBAM to go worldwide so that any church in America who has a passion for a certain people group can take this model and run with it. We don't have the people, the talent, the ability, the money to do the whole world ourselves. Why IBAM and why now? There's modern parallels to Paul's world and approach. English is ubiquitous around the world. Everywhere I go, whether I'm in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Ukraine, I always run into English speakers. And I'm trying to learn Russian, and they tell me, quit talking Russian, we don't want to talk English. Uh, the other thing is, global travel is easy. Wayne, you talked about this. We can get anywhere in the world in hours. And then global trade, the last hundred years, has facilitated this ease of doing business cross-culturally. It's, it's normal for people now. And so our approach is to focus on the indigenous believer to start a business. It's their idea, not ours. The local believer has already people they know, but they get into the business community and their local networks and they start building relationships. And that's what we want. And then the emphasis is on the Great Commission, on sharing the gospel, advancing the church, mentoring spiritual leaders. And the thing is, the local church is preeminent in our model. Here's places we've worked or are working. I'm going on a survey trip to Kazakhstan in July, and then we go to Tajikistan. And Tajikistan's a great example. Jamshed is a national pastor there. I met him at a, when he was at a conference at Dallas Theological Seminary. He has a vision to reach his whole nation with, with house churches. 
And his number one issue is economic opportunity for the men, his leaders. They're persecuted. Think about it. They're Muslims who become Christians. They lose their families. They lose their jobs. And what Jamshed has a desire to do is to partner with IBAM and put a business in every one of his house churches throughout the nation of Tajikistan, no matter how long it takes. So we're excited by that. And we have a partner church in Canton, Ohio, that's going to work with us. Um, So that's where we are. So here's the challenge that we meet. National partners have church planning visions that are being limited by persecution. MBBs is a term for Muslim background believers, lose their jobs, like I just said. And then this dynamic hurts the local church, it hurts their families. And so our solution is we assist that national partner with a church planning vision through the tool of entrepreneurship. And we assist these Muslim background believers in launching their business idea. We enable them to live at home, to invest their time, talent, and treasure in their local church. And then mentor and disciple new entrepreneurs to operate biblically and enter into society like Paul to share their faith and invest in their local church. That's our vision. Um, Real quickly, how we choose a location. We have to have a national partner and a missionary present, and we have to be invited in. We don't force our way in. There's no way, as a banker, I'm going to Kazakhstan to make a loan. I don't know how to vet them. Can't pull a credit report. Um, There has to be an active house or church planting vision. Um, There has to be an ability to privately own a business. There has to be lost income due to persecution. These are just the things that ring our bell before we'll go into a country. We're we're seeking limited access culture nations. And we want the partner and the missionary to adhere to our doctrinal statement, which would tie nicely with the one here. And then there has to be funding available, obviously, before we go into a country. And so real quickly, the model starts with the church overseas and, and I'm sorry, and the church in the U.S. because we want volunteers from churches to go on trips to bless these believers overseas. Starts with the entrepreneur, though. And the local church, they vet them, send them to our class. It's by invite only. The local church in the U.S. sends the volunteers. And then here is the core of our curriculum, the foundations of business. Half that, That's all one week, the first course, and half of the curriculum is on uh, the biblical doctrine of work and what God's Word says about money and business. And then we go into the fundamentals of business and marketing, accounting, things like that. Then we come back for trip two, and we actually do a full-scale business plan where we interview them for three hours. It's kind of like Shark Tank, only it's a nice Christian version. And um, it's a great tool, and when it's done, the spreadsheet converts to their language and currency. There's 14 languages we have today. And, uh, and the greatest moment is when we say we're going to do it, and the tears flow because as Muslims, they lose their respect. And when we help them catalyze a business idea, they say the number one comment we get is, you're giving me my respect back in the community, in the eyes of my community, which then gives them the ability to have a platform. The other thing that's funny is the best customers of our businesses that we started are always Muslims because Christians are honest. They know it. One of our guys, Ikarin, in, um, uh, in Uzbekistan, I can say that, uh, he said his number one referral source is the imam at the local mosque. Yep. And then phase three is we teach him, okay, now you're going to get the money. How do you grow it? Remember I told you all my problems started after I started? So we go through that kind of training. Um, So here it is in a a nutshell, the pre-reads for phase one at the invite, phase one, 
They have to do a big research project after the first trip. If they don't do it, they don't get invited. That's the way we vet their persistence and they're willing to do the work. And that, that research project gives us what we need to write the business plan. And we vet that. We look at it. If they didn't do it well, we, if we don't get enough students, we won't go back. So that's the pressure we put on them. Then we go back and do phase two and three. And so that's the whole end-to-end process. The most important pieces, honestly, are the front-end fit and the back-end mentor-entrepreneur. Uh, we have two missionaries today uh, going to Kosovo and Uzbekistan. But we'll work with any like-minded mission agency who sees this as a tool for their ministry. And we'll work with those missionaries to do the follow-up because without the follow-up, our model breaks down. There has to be that monthly discipleship and mentoring, business mentoring meeting. And we provide materials for that. So this is how we do it. We have the missionary, we have the curriculum, we have the follow-up, and then we have uh, one thing that would probably be exciting to some people, we're going to raise up coaches in the U.S. who will coach our missionaries and other missionaries on the business aspect. Okay? So that's the model. John is from Kiev, Ukraine. He's Egyptian. He married a Ukrainian. And he now has four stores that we helped him start. And they're very successful. One of our board members is a CFO of a large energy company, CPA. He went in there and started grilling him about his inventory control. And John had great answers. It was so cool. And John's successful today um, and living out his faith. Um, here was our cohort from Ukraine this year. Uh, several of those people are students in the program. Um, one couple over the far left next to the bald, mean-looking guy. Um, um, Vitaly and Anna came from the war-torn section of eastern Ukraine. They've been living the war, and they drove five hours to get to Kiev so they could do this training. And when you get with people like that and what they're doing for their faith, it just humbles you. Um, here is Ashraf and his family. Um, I'm not gonna, I don't know if he said, I'm going to take a risk here and see what he says. Here's his, he says, hello, dear friends and family. I'm Ashraf, and the picture above is my family. And at first, we want to thank you for your help to our family. Last year, we got loans, and we're already started in our business. Praise God, our business is growing well. And through it, our financial situation is growing and we also can help our brothers and sisters more effectively. Also, it is helping to share the gospel with more people because we started to contact with more people, and God's kingdom is expanding. Several people already heard the gospel and are getting close to God. Again, thank you for your impact in our life. We've learned a lot from you about business and serve God through business. God bless you, Ashraf and family. Amen. Isn't that cool? I get so passionate. This is what keeps me up at night. So, Real quick, problems with our thinking, we've talked about it in this conference. We have dissonance about making money. We have a patchwork theology. We have this false dichotomy of business and ministry. And our response needs to be to form individually a thoroughly biblical worldview. TMAI probably has resources to help you with that, as does this church. Um, Accept and live the biblical doctrine of work. Take on the perspective of a steward because money is a tool. Um, integrate your work and business and ministry as one, and then consider a version of BAM as a solution to your desire to serve using business skills and missions. So uh, I'll just, I'm not selling you. So this is my sell sheet, so we're not going to talk about this. Anyway, what I want to say to you is, I hope it's the end of the day now, and the question is, now what and so what? Right? Now what and so what? All right, you can come to a conference, you can get fired up and leave, Three weeks from now, you're doing the same thing you did before you came today. 
And I just want to encourage you, you know, um, John Maxwell, I, I don't agree with everything he says, but I've learned a lot from him in terms of the art of leadership. And in the 80s, I was an Enjoy Life Club member for years and years. I have every lesson. He, he had a talk where he said, you got to have vision. You have to have vision, because if you don't have vision, you won't persist. You won't overcome obstacles. You'll quit. And people with vision do things that people without vision will never do. And so he, what he said is you have to think, you have to go through the I thought it stage. And I thought it means God gave it to you. And then you got to go through the I caught it stage, which means you've been wrestling with this idea that God's given you. And now you've caught it. It's got in your heart and you want to pursue it. Whatever it is, you don't all have to quit your job like I did and move to another state. Okay? You don't have to have your Abraham experience. But, uh, uh, um, but you, but you have to catch it, and then you have to go through the I saw it stage, which means take action, whatever it is. Uh, Wayne, I'm looking right at him, gave you some practical solutions to how to be a witness at work. It may be as simple as that, or it may be you're sitting here going, I want to start a business. Well, you've got to take action. And then what you want to do, and this is where I'm at now, I'm at the I got it stage, meaning I've gone through all four of those, and I'm going to tell you guys, my kids are different kids than they would have been without this. Me and my wife are different. I never would be standing here. I wouldn't have met all these wonderful speakers if I hadn't been obedient to the calling God's had in my life. So I hope this has been encouraging. Thank you so much. Have a great day.